Friends, today we begin a new sermon series entitled, Thine is the Kingdom, as we look at the message and the theme of the kingdom of God as spoken to by Jesus, as we find in the four Gospels. Truth be told, the concept of a kingdom or even being led by a king is a foreign one for us today, for we no longer have countries who are ruled by kings. In fact, though, if you read the whole of the Old Testament, you'll find that it is set in the context of kings and of kingdoms that are constantly waging war against one another. In fact, the scriptures remind us that Israel, for the most part of its existence, did not have an earthly king reigning over them. God was their sovereign king and ruler, and he called the people to live peacefully and united together under his rule through the voices of judges and even by the elders of the people. But as time went on, the people became restless. They, they wanted to be like the other nations who had a king reigning over them. And so they went to the prophet Samuel and told Samuel to tell God that God should give them an earthly king. As you can imagine, this displeased the Lord and he heard their cries for this. And he told Samuel to go back to them and to explain to them that if they have an earthly king, it will bring nothing but problems and trouble for them. For this king will take advantage of them in many ways. He will tax them. He will take their land and their flocks. He will send their sons off to war. He will make their daughters his bakers and cooks. And ultimately, he will make them all his slaves. Despite Samuel's honest announcement of what God had told them would happen, the people shouted all the more for God to give them an earthly king. So what does God do? Well, God does exactly what they ask. He gives them what they ask for. He gives them an earthly king. It begins with King Saul. It moves to King David and to King Solomon. And then the fight for political power within the family system divides the kingdom into two separate kingdoms, Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And now these separate kingdoms are uh, in charge of, uh, of two kings who now rule over them. And if you read the scriptures, you'll find that many of those kings did evil in the sight of the Lord. God was right all along, wasn't he? By asking for those kings, they would get exactly what he told them they would get. But the issue here is that what the people really wanted was not for God to rule over them, but to be ruled by a kingdom of this world. In fact, God tells Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. You see, a rejection of God is the story of the Old Testament, isn't it? It begins in the Garden of Eden with a rejection of obedience from Adam and Eve, and it continues on throughout the entirety of the Scriptures as the kingdom of Israel is formed and shaped, and it rejects God as their king, seeking earthly power. And then Jesus appears on the scene in our New Testament and he often speaks of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And these two phrases are used interchangeably to speak of God reclaiming his rightful place as Israel's king. And it's in and through Jesus that the kingdom of God comes near to them. In fact, it is Jesus who teaches his disciples how to pray what we know as the Lord's Prayer. And in that prayer, Jesus teaches them to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those who follow Jesus accept God's reign over their lives. Baptism becomes a sign of repentance, a recrossing of the Jordan River in which the believer surrenders their life to the will and to the rule of God. 
Jesus is inaugurating a new day, a day in which the kingdom of God is arriving in the presence of God's people. And this kingdom seeks to right what's wrong with the world, to bring healing and reconciliation, not to perpetuate division and discord. And so our passage today from Matthew's gospel is in the context of the kingdom of God coming among them through Jesus' miraculous healing. Our passage is actually set in the context of Jesus healing a man on the Sabbath day. And it's the Pharisees, the religious elite, the teachers of the law, who understand that it's unlawful to heal anyone on the Sabbath according to their interpretation of the law. And so they go to Jesus and they ask him if it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath day. But Jesus reminds them that if one of their sheep were to fall into a pit on the Sabbath, they would certainly rescue it. And he goes on to say to them, how much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And in doing this, Jesus heals a man with a shriveled hand, which angers the Pharisees and sends them out to plot how they might kill Jesus. Jesus knows this, but it doesn't stop him from doing God's work. In fact, crowds of people begin to crowd around him, and Jesus begins to heal all the sick who are among them. And in the midst of this, they bring to him a demon-possessed man who was both blind and mute. And Jesus heals him so that he could both talk and see. And everyone who witnessed this, they were astonished and amazed at what they were witnessing before their very eyes. And they began to say to one another, could this be the son of David? That's interesting that they use this title. It's a royal title and it calls to mind this Old Testament promise that the son of David would rule as Israel's king forever. So this question in their mind reverberates the hopes of Israel's long-awaited Messiah. People were moved by what they beheld in Jesus' compassion and healing, and many of them were becoming believers that he just might be the one that the prophet Nathan had prophesied about. But once again, where faith begins to take root, seeds of doubt are also planted. The Pharisees, hearing their rhetoric, began to move into action to stop this from gaining traction. They declared, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Now, here in full view of them all is a man who was demon-possessed and who was set free from his oppression. He was finally given the ability to see and to talk the ability to be normal again, and rather than rejoicing that this man had been healed, they used this healing against Jesus to discredit his ministry. Now, all of you know that we are less than two weeks away from Election Day. For the last six months or better, we have seen political advertisements on our television screens, on our iPads and computer screens, In our mailboxes, we've even received text messages targeting our cell phones. When I returned home from the beach this week with my family, I went to our mailbox, and when I opened it up, it was packed full of mail, and I expected it to be because we were gone for a few days. But when I pulled out the mail and I began to sort out what was legitimately mail versus political advertisements, I only had four pieces of mail that were legitimate. Everything else was a stack this high of negative attack ads against one's opponent. 
And the sad reality is that our political system has reverted to advertising that discredits the opponent, rather giving credibility to oneself. In other words, we've been reduced to don't vote for this person because they're terrible because of blah, 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 blah. We never hear vote for me because this is what I will do for you. Misinformation and quotes used out of context are used as a tax to sway the voter to vote for the more honest politician. And apparently this tactic that we see happening before our very eyes all the time, well, it must be an ancient one. The Pharisees also use it against Jesus. They wouldn't want the people to recognize his authority and to believe that he could truly be from God. That would disrupt their own authority and power as the religious elite. So they argue that Jesus must be the prince of demons in order to drive them out. They basically are calling Jesus evil and that his tactics are to pull the wool over all of their eyes. And rather than being open to the fact that Jesus is doing God's work, they oppose him and seek to make him out to be a liar and a fraud. But Jesus refuses to give in to their mudslinging, and he refutes their whole argument with one of his own. He says, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus' argument is that evil can't drive out evil. Only God's love can do that. You see, evil is like a virus that spreads from host to host unless someone is inoculated with a vaccine that can combat it. And Jesus is the cure, the one who heals the bruised reeds and the smoldering wicks that the prophet Isaiah speaks of. In fact, he argues that there are other Jews who exercise demons too, but they don't seem to be accusing them of being evil. Are his exorcisms any different than the others? Yes and no, for both seek to combat evil and heal the possessed, but Jesus doesn't use rituals in order to do it. He simply commands that the Spirit leave. Therefore, God is doing something never seen before in and through him. In him, the Spirit of God is at work. And Jesus declares that when the Spirit of God is at work, that the kingdom of God is present. Whenever Jesus is helping people, whether it's on the Sabbath day or any other time during the week, the Spirit of God is at work and the kingdom is visibly seen. And this kingdom of God is opposed to the kingdom or the kingdoms of this world. For according to Jesus, Satan is the prince of this world. In fact, in John chapter 16, Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit coming to the disciples after he leaves. And he says that the Spirit will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin righteousness, and judgment. And he goes on to say, and about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Here Jesus chastises their assertions that he is evil and that he is manipulating evil to gain favor of the people. He claims that he does these things by the Spirit of God and that divine power doesn't need human affirmation to be divine. 
And so Matthew paints a picture of the Jewish Jesus who understands the language of kingdom rightly, that God's kingdom, his sovereign reign, is different from the kingdoms of the world that is a distortion of the way things were meant to be. In fact, Jesus' statement to them that the kingdom of God has come upon them or upon you, it asserts judgment against the Pharisees who blaspheme the work of the Holy Spirit to declare God's love and care for his people. In fact, the Greek word epthazon has come is used often in terms of punishment. And so Jesus is telling them that the kingdom has come in judgment against their accusations to declare God's righteousness and their willingness to be victimized by the evil powers that would lead them to distort the truth. They have chosen the kingdom of the prince of the world in the guise of being faithful to God's sovereignty over them. Yet they stand judged already for their refusal to be loyal to the kingdom of God that has clearly been seen with their own eyes and heard with their own ears, not just in the miracles that they've witnessed Jesus do, but in the very person of Jesus who they reject. See, why the concept of kingdoms may seem like a foreign concept for us today, Jesus makes it plainly clear that there's no neutrality when it comes to the kingdom of God. He says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. The truth is that the kingdom of God has come upon us all. It's present where the Spirit of God is active and at work. And Jesus tells his disciples that they will receive the Spirit of God in their hearts to lead them and to guide them into his holiness. You see, we are not abandoned, but we are adopted and engrafted into God's family in order that together we might participate in God's sovereign rule in the world. And each and every day we have a choice to make, to be tempted and swayed by the kingdoms of the world or be led by the kingdom of God. You know, elections will come and go, There will be political leaders who are good, and there will be leaders who are absolutely corrupt. But no leader, whether a senator or a congressperson or even the president of this country, is the savior of our nation, nor can they hold everything together. It's so easy in the midst of a divided nation to get sucked into the political promises of those who seek power It's easy to get sucked into the political mudslinging and negativity that often demonizes the other rather than civilly and respectably treating them as they should. And sometimes it's even easy to think that even if we get a new king, that everything will be just fine. But I have to remind you folks, that's what Israel desired even when they were told that it wouldn't work out that way. And so what I find here at play in our passage today is a simple question for every single person, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. The question is simply this, which kingdom do we direct our loyalties to? That's what Jesus is saying to us today. For every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And we see the truth of this statement ever before our very eyes. And so Jesus directs our attentions away from the kingdoms of this world to the kingdom of God, to the sovereign rule of the one who has created us, who has redeemed us, and who sustains us and calls us to participate in the Spirit's ongoing work in the world right now. 
He calls us to lift our eyes up to the one who longs to reign in our hearts, to rule in our lives, to affect our every decision that earnestly longs for God's kingdom to come, for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the beauty of God's kingdom is that it's near to us and that it's not something that we just sit and wait for when we finally arrive into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has said that the kingdom of God has come upon us. It's come upon us. And yes, there's judgment for those who refuse to profess loyalty to this king, but there's good news for those of us who do. For Christ the king is the righteous king who does not rule with an iron fist nor forces himself upon us. Instead, as the psalmist exclaims, the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. Indeed, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. Friends, today I urge you to rededicate your loyalties to the righteous king who reigns in love and calls us to follow in his lead as we seek to share his goodness so that others might know his mighty acts and see the glorious splendor of his kingdom that brings salvation and grace. For indeed, Jesus commands us in Matthew 6, but seek first his kingdom and righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Today, May we pledge our allegiance to him alone and seek to be faithful to his mission and work in his church, both this day and forevermore, as we continue to pray for his kingdom to come and for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Friends, may it be so this day and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.